Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Down the block, Andrew Gunn. Inside for Elba. Elba will score. Elba will score. Newcastle has won the grand final. It's got the ball. Jared Welcome back to the Rugby League Guru Podcast. Today, I'm lucky enough to be joined by former Warriors and Gold Coast Titan, Clinton Torpy. You remember Clinton from the early 2000s playing for the New Zealand Warriors when they were just playing that Globetrotter brand of rugby league, throwing the ball around, just playing unstructured footy, which was just so entertaining. We're starting to see it come back a little bit, but the early 2000s New Zealand Warriors, they were the absolute kings of it, and Clinton Torpy was right in the centre of it. Um, he played centre or wing for them and was just an excitement machine. He played 130 games of first grade for the Warriors, then made a trip over to Leeds, played 50-odd games there, won a premiership with Leeds, returned to Australia and played for the Gold Coast Titans. In the mix of that, he tells an amazing story about how he almost went to Rugby Union. He says it was solely for money. The offer was far too good. And it's an unbelievable story how that falls apart in front of him in a matter of a few months. Crazy story. He talks about his time playing for the New Zealand Kiwis. And, you know, he's one of those guys that... He's very underappreciated. He's played 22 games for the Kiwis and scored 11 tries. And he's, I believe he scored two hat-tricks against the Kangaroos, which is just unheard of. Clinton tells an array of crazy stories from his career. The standout for me, though, was one time when he was in Kiwis camp and they were staying down at the hotel in Coogee in Sydney. And he went down to get breakfast. And um, it just happened to be that the Kangaroos were staying in the same hotel. And the Kangaroos were down there getting breakfast, too. Clinton's standing at the toaster and a uh, certain kangaroo's halfback, who might be an immortal now, walked up to him and tried to convince him to leave the Warriors and come to the Newcastle Knights. He obviously didn't, but it's one hell of a regret that he's got in his career. It's a cracking yarn with a great bloke and an absolute entertainment machine in rugby league. I know you'll love it. Let's kick it off. Hey, Clinton, welcome on. How are we? 
Good, thanks, Guru. What are you up to? I look, I'm trying to be productive in this sort of scary time in um, society and, and life, but finding it easier to do nothing. You're living the dream, are you? Uh, it's quite nice here on the Gold Coast. I'm in a fortunate position then most with my role and how you know we've been looked after currently, but post that, um, it's still unknown for a lot of us. Like I said, trying to make things um, a smooth sailing whilst we've got a bit of downtime at home with the kids and family. It's, it hasn't been smooth sailing, to be brutally honest. Has the uh, arguments has, here and there? Has the cabin there. fever kicked in yet? Oh man, yeah. Look, uh, my, my my kids they're testing at the at the best of times. I love them, but um, they can be testing, and they've tested me since they've been home. <laughs> well, the good news for you, it's just the beginning. Well, yeah, I know. It's uh, it's crazy to think um, where we're going to be in another three, four weeks. Mate, it really could be anything. It's scary times. Let's uh, let's rewind. A couple of years ago, born in New Zealand. Tell me about your childhood over there. Look, mate, I, um, I sort of grew up in a maybe a low social economic community. I grew up in um, a, a little town called Pamua in Auckland. And, you know, we lived in a state house where my, both my parents worked. We weren't in a sort of on the dole. Or, you know, my parents were hard workers. They were, you know, looked after us and very strong, I guess, parents when I was coming through um, as a young one. But... Um, we pretty much lived there till I was 18, and I got my first contract with the with the Warriors. But I think what's sometimes left out when you're coming through and you're having chats on you know podcasts or platforms like this is that we tend to forget about the people that actually helped you when you're coming through at the younger younger years. And um, there was a guy named Peter Bredenbeck who was my coach at the Mount Wellington Warriors. I was actually playing for Richmond, but he told me to come over and play for them when I was 10. Um, I mentioned his name because he sort of mentored me through um, five years of my time at the Mount Wellington Warriors, who the likes of Logan Swan, the Sorensons, the Eagles came out of, the Lulawais, sort of pulled me out and just said, look, I'm going over to the Odahu Leopards. This is where I think you know some opportunities could you know, start happening for you. I'm taking my son there, and um, I sort of followed suit with him at the age of 16. My time at the Odahu Leopards, we were under, uh, within a couple of years, I was in what they called the under-23s, and I think that moulded a lot of the guys back then to shape up with the men. Uh, when we finally got that opportunity at a young age, we were quite conditioned, because we were playing with under 23 or 23 year olds I was maybe 17 18 you know sort of two three years playing with guys that uh, were a lot mature and a lot older was that a pretty scary experience when when it first came around nah that's probably one thing I I never feared anybody probably my mum but (laughs) on a serious (laughs) note when I played footy I had no fear I loved it I enjoyed the contact I enjoyed the the challenge or you know, the sort of things that come with playing contact sport and you'll know full well what that's all about and the mentality that you need to sort of in that type of sport and game. 
I know I thrived off it and I thrived off the players that were around me. We had some pretty cool players that I felt were a lot better than me that didn't eventually go all the way, but I guess they sort of helped me in my times when I was at Odahu Leopards. Um, Henry Perinara, his old man, he ended up coaching us to a grand final win in uh, under 23s. I reckon that was around the late 90s. I think it was 1999 by memory. I was 19. Um, no, actually, I tell a lie, it might be 98. So we had Henry Perinara. Um, oh, I'll probably say some names you wouldn't probably recognise. Well, mate, but... to be honest with you, I actually taught Henry Perinara's daughter two years ago. So I know him quite well. He's an absolute champion, isn't he? Oh, yeah. Oh, mate, he's a legend. And I think he sort of got a lot of stick when we were growing up because he was quite professional and he took everything quite seriously from a, a, I guess, from a player's perspective, I think he was a professional. But when you're coming up and you don't know what professionalism, you're playing sport because you love it and you just love that and that kind of environment. I think he was one of those guys that dressed, who ate well and knew about hydration. I remember him always eating his watermelons and having his banana on toast. Uh, just He just was prepared really well coming through the grades. He's passed it on to his young bloke because his young bloke's one hell of a junior footballer now too. I um I coach against him and fuck he he can play. Yeah, well said, man. It's in his DNA. His old man. Uh, it's sad that he hasn't got an opportunity to coach at a higher level because every level he's coached, he's had he's either won it or been to the grand final, and that's to me in my eyes is something that you know I feel as a successful coach that can sort of take teams to grand finals and win them. I mean, there's coaches up here at the highest level that haven't won jack, and <laughs> they're coaching at the highest level, and you wonder how some guys like that slip through the cracks and don't get those opportunities. Yeah, it's all a bit crazy. Um, you mentioned earlier about playing a contact sport. You know, I guess, um, you know, for, for people to look back on your highlights, you know, they see the um, the destructive centre down the sideline or setting up your winger, I believe you actually started as a forward. Is that true? Yeah, that was the craziest thing. I'd um, yeah, I'd always played loose forward or throw coming through. I'd never been in the backs um, at any point in my career. My debut was second row. I think I was the eight ringing wet uh, when I played in 1999. I subbed on for Logan Swan, but uh, that's correct. Uh, I'd I was a back rower, always been a back rower until I sort of made the local seniors team, which was the Odahu Leopard Seniors, and a guy by the name of James Lulaway, who was a is a Kiwi legend and father of Thomas Lulaway, gave me the an uncle of Kylie or brother, Kylie Lulaway, and gave me the opportunity to play in the centres. He said, look, I see you playing here. And we played very similar and we had similar builds. He was probably a bit more handsome, but... Um, That's because you were playing in the forwards, though. <laughs> yeah. But we were sporting um, yeah, very similar um, athletic abilities and builds. Tell me about uh, how did your debut come about in 1999? Tell me about the, the week leading up to the and the experience. It was surreal. It was crazy because... Um, Mark Graham was the coach of the Warriors at the time and he'd signed me at 
the end of 1998 on a scholarship. Myself, Henry Perrin, uh, Henry Fahafili and Harry Aonga. But fast forward six to eight months, the Warriors weren't going too well um, around that 99 period and they'd come and gave me a tap on the shoulder when I was warming up at OW Leopards. I think we were playing North Coast at the time. Tapped me on the shoulder and said, mate, um, we're going to give you a crack at playing first grade if you're, if you're, if you're interested. I, I couldn't believe it. I was just so pumped. I was amped and I can't even remember how we went that day, but I just still remember that tap on the shoulder and given that opportunity and then to come in and part of that professional environment, which I still had no idea what professionalism was, you know, was a bit of a wake up call, but an eye opener and, um, something I've still cherished to this day. I remember playing some of my music on game day and that, getting the opportunity to play it because it was the things that sort of was motivating me in the lead up to those to that day or that game. It was um, DMX was on my playlist. And wow, that's going was, back. Yeah, it was a full Collins remake. And anyway, um, it just been mentored by some pretty amazing athletes and Richie Blackmore, Matthew Ridge, Logan Swan was a huge part of, um, you know, really looking after me. Warangi Kōpū and Ali Laotiti were young guns already in the system and sort of done the junior Kiwis with uh, Warangi. So it sort of made a strong connection straight away and we're still pretty tight today, even though we're in different countries. We still sort of keep connected on social media. You two, you get them an opportunity. Here's Jones in his face. Jones is inside the 10. Jones scores. New Zealand are level. New Zealand are level. Tell me about uh, the handy little halfback you played with. I imagine playing with him would have just been an absolute privilege, Stacey Jones. Uh, look, he, in my eyes, is one of the greatest, most valuable players I'd ever you know, had the opportunity to play alongside. He he was never a guy that was there for the highlight reels. He was never a guy that was all about himself. Um, the, I think he was the most selfless player you'd ever played with. And I always use this whenever um, the story about players running lines for Stacey Jones. So if there's seven options, he's got seven players running for him. Whether that's the wide man, the tail out the back, the two leads... You know the the winger out the on the way out on the edge and everybody around it. They all ran with purpose and intent because they knew nine times out of ten he was going to put it on the money and he was going to put any player through the gap. It wasn't about run to the line all these decoys so I can run through dummy and you know look good. He was always calculated. He always was precise and um, very humble. He never liked the limelight, but a valuable player in the eyes of myself and I'm, I'm sure many other players that played alongside him. Selfless and the general, as as, as he's been touted, is um, yeah, very fitting. He was the sort of guy that was just perfect for that squad too, wasn't he? Yeah, look, he didn't have to yell. He was one of those guys that had, was softly spoken, but he pointed, he directed, he barked. And and you moved, you ran, you got into position, you knew what you had to do. And I love that leadership about him, even though some may not see quiet people as your leaders, but 
he was probably one that didn't have to say too much and you know he got a lot of um, positive responses and um, yeah like I still you know value that memory in those times to this day Mate, the uh, the 2001, 2002, 2003 season, they, they were some cracking years for the Warriors. I want you to tell me about the year 2000, which was probably one of the low points in the club's history. What was the feel around the club at that point? Yeah, I think um, we were sort of living in, a, I guess, <laughs> a bubble because we'd felt, this is myself personally, but I just felt like league wasn't going anywhere and Warriors was still a, a force to be reckoned with and we were still a big part of the bigger picture and I think um, you know when they had these new appointments and Daniel Anderson uh, Mick Watson Eric Watson I think um, it was uncertain times but it was a new beginning you know throughout the stuff we'd gone through and the changeover and there was a lot of people with good intentions and their heart was in the right place. And so we never got too caught up in it. We were still focused on playing the game we all love and dreamt of and um, enjoyed, I guess, the the privileges and the opportunities that came with it um, in the years to come after. So the years to come after, in 2001, you guys are essentially tipped to finish in last place. Um you know, every punter, all the media was all over your backs and came out and made the finals. Um, you know, some of the highs you had that year, in my opinion, that, that 2001 Eels side, they're the best team ever to not win a premiership. You managed to knock them off all the season. Tell me about that year. I think that's when we were starting to see the fruits of the real, I guess, Kiwi ability. And... Daniel Anderson was one of those coaches who nurtured that out of, um, out of us, you know. And the teacher, he had a way to connect with us um, Kiwi players, Māori and Pacific Islanders, in a way that you know, some may not have, but it really resonated well with myself and I know a lot of other players at the time and I guess he sharpened the skills that we already had and never put a lid on our abilities, but they enabled us to improve being able to handle the ball. Shouldn't be saying much because I, I dropped that many, but <laughs> he gave us the ability or games that were game-related, that were um, focused around playing at a high intensity, but also showcasing our skill set and it was a different form of conditioning that we weren't used to because we were came through that age of uh, running around the oval for like 30 laps and, you know, sort of that old mentality of training. And we got just as much value out of the conditioning games than we did out of that long running and endurance uh, style. I know there's still a place for it, but I think, I think it was over valued at um, at the times that we were coming through. And so when we got that shake-up, it became more enjoyable, it became more competitive and, and, you know, sort of a fun environment. And the guys that were sort of your heavier boys got to shine and do their skill set too, under fatigue. And um, I, I just think the, the main thing was our ability to offload, our ability to 
sharpen our skills at a high level and get the conditioning base under our belts, built that strong foundation, which was able to be, um, you know, ex exploited or um, given the opportunity to do that when that time arose on the, on the paddock and gain confidence off it. We got better at it. And I think that's where, you know, that success came off the back of those kinds of trainings and um, the, the change in mindset and focus on, you know, what we could do as, you know, athletes in New Zealand. And Daniel Anderson was a key, key um, contributor to that for sure. Probably one of the best coaches I've ever had. The Warriors now go out on their most important assignment. Minor Premiers, they've done themselves proud, they've done their country proud, and they have really boosted the stocks of Rugby League in the shaky aisle. Daniel Anderson would then, in the next season, take you all the way to the grand final. You won the Minor Premiership in 2002, and for me, I look at that season and think that's the peak in the Warriors at a franchise um, so far. Tell me about that season. It just seemed that you guys were just clicking and you're offloading and second-phase footy. It was just working perfectly for you guys. Tell me about that season. Yeah, I think um, it's never when we were under duress or under pressure or behind on the scoreboard, we just sort of think, I don't know whether or not it was a bit of ego or a bit of kind of, confidence that we had drawn from the year prior that gave us that winning uh, mentality and a focus to say, hey, look, it, there's no white flag here. We'll, we'll be right. We'll pull it back in. Or we always got reassured by our senior players, the likes of um, Stacey Jones, Arwen Goodenbell, Logan Swan, you know, all these athletes, Kim Campion, Ivan Cleary, these players that were around us that even was still young in forty years had had um, composure about them, and they were sort of always on that you know that positive thinking and positive mindset and just reaffirming it when times were getting tough and I think that's probably one of the amazing things that we were able to blend together was that ability to be there for each other or flick a pass and know that that was coming out and not have to be programmed, but just instinctively knew when the strengths were possessed. And so we ran, ran to the line. You knew Ali was going to draw at least two or three players in, which was going to create holes in and around him. So everybody was always on their toes around Big Ali or um, you know, Fekapalasina would always break a tackle, so his post-contact meters were just ridiculous if they were taken and back then. Um, you know, just just things like that, that sort of we thrived off, and it was no different from us playing in the backyard with our uncles and relatives and friends growing up, it was that backyard footy. We were able to do that at the highest level and on the biggest stages, and I think that's what... Um, you know, people got attracted to and enjoyed. Mate, I remember being at your your semi-final against the Sharks out at Homebush, and it felt like there was more Warriors fans than Sharks fans there, and it was in the heart of Sydney. Tell me about that day. That was incredible. Yeah, that's still, um, you know, one of those tries that was scored. It was a memorable moment for me, but um, support. It did help that Eric Watson... Um, <laughs> 
the multi-millionaire was able to give out some tickets to our, you know, avid supporters that have been through thick and thin with us. It was a couple um, of thousand, wasn't it? Uh, I think it was in the 10, maybe 10,000. Wow. But between five and 10, it was either five or 10, but... It felt like 50 out there. <laughs> yeah, look, as uh, much as we go through highs and lows and... We're currently probably at a low at the minute, if we were to be honest. I think we still got a strong following. Everybody still has that strong connection. Everybody loves league as much as Union's the number one sport. We've still got massive uh, rugby league contingent back home. And and that's no different over here, too, for those that have came ashore for uh, richer pastures or, you know, trying to get more opportunities here in Australia. They've still got that uh, Warriors to to their chest or got that jersey in the closet with cobwebs on it or um you know have that strong support for for the warriors tell me about running out in the 2002 grand final yeah i still you know taking me back right now i can still remember running out and just overawed with i guess the occasion overawed with the i guess the crowd overawed with actually being in the grand final I think this is a bit cliched, but it's something you you dreamed of, but you never thought would happen. And being in that moment was so surreal that I think I got caught up. Well, I think I know I've got caught up in just being happy to be there. I think that's probably one of the things. There's always that, um, I guess, want to or desire to win, but our goals that year were to make the grand final. And I'm speaking on my own behalf because I don't know if it's similar to my experiences, but it almost felt like we had achieved what we needed to achieve. And if it sounds odd because you can sit and go, but you wanted to win. I said, yeah, I fucking know that I did. Uh, we all wanted to win. It was enough because we had got and achieved the highest height of making the grand final. But I don't think we had, can't remember, to be brutally honest, I can't remember if we had a next stage step after making the grand final if that makes sense if that was a part of our goals I only remember us having the goal of actually making the grand final and that's probably you know probably the downfall for myself in that particular time in my career was just being uh, I don't know if it was complacent or just being excited and happy that we'd achieved the goal and achieved something no one would ever had thought would be possible for the New Zealand Warriors. It's one of those games where if you just look at the scoreline at the end of the game, it, it really doesn't tell the story. Like 30 to 8, it doesn't express how other Warriors were into the game. Tell me about the halftime speech. I, I've, you know, I spoke to um, Kevin Campion a few weeks ago and he just said the halftime was like nothing he's ever seen before. Tell me about that, that experience. Yeah, it's quite funny because um, I'm currently... You know, assisting, well, we're not now because we've had a big shutdown, but I was assisting at the uh, South Logan Magpies with Buchanan and Matt Cameron. were, And they were talking about how Seabolt is having video sessions at halftime. And it was a strange one for them to witness and something that they'd never heard of. But I recall our grand final and. 2001 or two, where we 
come in at half time and we had a video session <laughs> or some video playing whilst we were in there and I think different it was new and I suppose because it was different for us and new for us to actually be in that environment I think it was Daniel Anderson or the team that decided that was the way to go was an opportunity to do something different because you think that that this is different. We're in a new environment. This is going to work. or But we never got to go back there to give it a crack again. But that was probably my, you know, sort of vaguest memory of halftime being uh, consumed by uh, some video footage <laughs> or a video session. Uh, and I don't think that was the tipping point. But I really don't know when the tipping point was. But I feel that... Um, you know, there would have been moments all throughout the game where I could have done something or I could have defended better or I could have ran harder or something to change the course of, I guess, our destiny come the 80th minute. Speaking of moments in that game, you guys come out just after halftime. You're down, um, you're down 6-2 and the little general, in my opinion, steps up and puts on the best play of his career. I think considering the moment, the game, the time... I think it's one of the best individual tries I've ever seen. Tell me about that moment. You must have been bloody confident after that. It was, I, I, I still remember running alongside him, trying to catch him, but but he's quite deceptively, um, deceptively fast, old uh, Stace. But I just remember him making a break through the line and then stepping the fullback and I was trying to push up, but I was too far away, but I was so pumped. I was trying to jump and grab and trying to get a bit of, energy up but as you said it was probably one of those greatest individual tries you'll see in the grand final you know ever if not one of the best be up there alongside you know some some great try moments in grand finals I think for me when I look back on that game and I think for most people at home the turning point was um, Richard Villasanti's late hit on Brad Fittler did you guys feel the tide starting to turn in that moment? Because it's heaps easy to say it was a turning point in hindsight. What was the feel like during the game? I don't know. I don't think I was fully connected that deeply then to sort of feel that that was the way because I was just playing sport because I loved it, you know, and I just happened to be playing it at the highest level. Look, I was passionate. I loved everything about it, but I wasn't sort of... Yes, they were on on our line for a bit. I do recall us under the pump for a bit and they scored some quick early points and it sort of maybe changed the momentum but I think um, one of the other things that I felt we lacked was that experience and that exposure to that type of level of pressure and that type of level of atmosphere and football we were paving the way for the New Zealand Warriors we were paving the way for the first ever semi-finals, the first ever minor premierships, the first ever grand finals. When you look at the guys like the Roosters and the lineup they had and the players they had, had over a hundred years history of that kind of environment. That I guess that that stage, that pressure, and I felt like they dealt with it and consumed it better than us. I think the biggest advantage for the Roosters too was that they'd made it to the grand final two years earlier and lost to the Broncos. They'd already had 
I like I think on grand final day you'd know better than me, but I think grand final experience is massive when the day comes. Oh, one hundred percent. Look, the only guys we could really look to for a grand final was I think was great Kevin Campion. And he was doing above and beyond what he should have been doing as a as as a player and as a leader for our team in the first instance. But outside of that, we were all babies in the scheme of things. We were all rookies. And yes, it sounds like an excuse, but it was a valid one. I mean, I've even seen moments where people are commenting, oh, you know, the Warriors don't do this or they haven't won a grand final yet. But if you look in our short history, we've actually been up there. Yes, we may have been out of the eight a few times, but when you compare us to somebody like the Sharks who took 50 years to actually win a grand final and we're coming up 25 years and we've still made grand finals um, in that short period of time. I think we always get looked on a lot harder and um, criticised a lot deeper (laughs) than what we've actually achieved. Yes, we've probably underachieved, but at the same time, we still haven't really had a rich enough history to sort of, you know, warrant wearing that. Um, That's my own personal opinion, but... I still feel like sometimes the Warriors get hammered a bit more than, you know, that's necessary. I, I know think... you got the argument of the Cowboys, but fuck, they had to go, mate. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> a fair got... shout, to be honest with you, mate. I think they cop a very, the, the very rough end of the stick. Um, I guess, you know, after that 2002 grand final, you guys come into 2003 and you make the finals again, you finish six, you finish one game short of the grand final, defeated by mm. Penrith, who went on to win the premiership themselves. It's a pretty successful period, isn't it? Yeah, look, um, it was. I think for us, we were bashed up with our game against Canberra uh, the week before Penrith. And hindsight, we thought about staying because of recovery, but because we thought, no, this is no different from what we normally do. Let's go home. I think that fatigue and re- sort of uh, recovery was a factor. Um, the travelling back, resting for a couple of days and then straight back over, whereas we should have stayed for those two or three days. Looking back at it now, yeah, hindsight's a beautiful thing, but I think we were so bashed up in one of, the, I guess, um, the most physical games we'd had in, in some time in 2003 versus Canberra, where we won on the uh, with a drop goal with Stace sealing that game. We were all pretty beat up. It was really physical. Um, we then got on a bus, went back home, flew out the next morning, and then did a couple of days recovering. Then we're straight back on the plane, back over and on the bus. And maybe those two or three days could have helped us heal a bit quicker and got us recovered better, but I've never really spoken to anybody about it, but that's my my take on that time. But again, Penrith were playing some red-hot footy and they had some pretty amazing athletes in their team as well, but I think, um, I think we're sort of just a bit fatigued from the week before. Mate, I, I don't want you to think I'm jumping on the, uh, on the bus to bash the Warriors, but... That 2003 season, I like personally, I think the Warriors, they made their biggest mistake in the club's history, letting Ali Lawatiti leave. Tell me about him. Oh, mate, I, I do too. And um, it breaks my heart because I've always wondered and I've questioned Daniel and Mick about 
reasons, you know, why they or Mick decided that it was best that he be gone. I think it just came down to what they thought or where he should place football in his life. It wasn't at number one. And it never had been. I think because we were a business, they were so, uh, I guess, they were so, what, what's the word I'm looking for? They were so used to the successes we had that when we started having a bit of form slump, they thought that maybe we weren't passionate enough or we were past it and out with the old and with the new. I think that was a, a big indicator as well. I think that they thought, because in, in Ali's life, it's always been God, family, football. But when we weren't going so hot, they thought that maybe he, you know, wasn't passionate about footy anymore and that he needs to put it number one. Um, that's my understanding of the situation. And so I think um, they made their decisions and they probably felt it was the right. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. For them at the time to you know, make some decisions, and obviously the majority of us, probably all of us, I should say, um, didn't agree with it and were really disappointed. It was one of those things that happened so quickly. You know, he was never replaced. Mate, uh, I, I could, always look could, at Ali Lauatidi and just think, fuck, if he would have come along 15 years later, he would have been the best forward in the game, in my opinion. 100%. People don't uh, realise how good he was. That's the thing. I think we we were just just were, weren't mature as a club. We weren't mature as especially that younger generation that came through my period. I think uh, I'm probably speaking for myself. Um, but I think we sort of just sort of young at heart and, and um, sometimes in a cutthroat business or in the sporting world where winning's everything, um, you know, that, that that can be seen as complacent. And maybe I, I was and maybe some of our athletes were at, at, at times through, uh, I guess, the downturn of our successes. But I think there was a lot of things that went on too that were out of our control, like Ali leaving and Logan Swan and Campion, Ivan Cleary, um, you know, the list goes on. Francis Melly, then Henry Farfilly, myself. It was crazy that they or the club and the organisation didn't think, let's let's really try and keep this core group of players together and try and build on the successes that we had. But because we went up and then down, they saw it in business eyes, something needs to change, something needs to happen. And it was a drastic move on their half and on their behalf, but they probably saw it as the right thing to do in their eyes. 
you guys made the finals in 2001, 2002, 2003, then missed in 04, 05, 06. You know, a pretty pretty sad time for the Warriors. But for you on the other side of the fence, playing for the Kiwis, tell me about the experience of wearing that black jersey for the first time. Uh, for me, it's the pinnacle. You know, some you know, Australian players, they say the state of origin is the pinnacle for them. But for us, it was Kiwis and something God always cherished and had as one of my main goals of representing and being a part of and I was over the moon and grateful when it was announced I remember telling my mum and she was blown away and then the rest of my family and friends it it, um yeah I still cherish those moments and those tests that I did play in my um in my time as a professional rugby league player you're a humble fella, but I am, you know, I haven't looked through the record books myself, but I think I'd be reasonably confident saying that you'd be the only bloke to score two hat-tricks against the Kangaroos. Tell me about those days. Yeah, look, um, you're correct, because much as um, people say I am humble, I actually enjoy those accolades post-footy. At the time, you're, you're almost mocked when you get, <laughs> or people give it a bit of banter when those sort of things come about, but it's not until you're over the fence and uh, you get to sort of look back and really appreciate those times. I regret not appreciating it when I was doing it, but I was just riding the wave. But those times in the Kiwi camp, those were the days when Lockyer and Fittler, Johns, all these guys were... You know, in the the green and golds, and we were playing against these guys, and we always had that um, rivalry. We always had that sort of dislike for each other. And as a youngster coming through, I we wore the underdog with pride, and well, I know I did, and I hated losing, and I cherished those moments that we did get to beat Australia on soil and on um, their backyard and again it was those moments where we were playing some backyard footy where I got to get or scab a couple of tries that were sort of there for the right person and I happened to be that that one in that particular moment um, but no those are massive highlights in, in, in my career and I still value that to this day but um, again it's running off guys like Stacey Jones or Nigel Wagner or guys like that that put me away and put me in a, into holes selflessly and all I had to do was pretty much score it or, you know, beat one man or, um, you know, in order to get over the line. But I forever cherish the black and white jersey and I know every single one that's put it on has. Um, and I really do hope that, you know, Madge... Uh, gets that respect back that we need at the international level, so it becomes, uh, I guess, stronger and stronger, and you know, it becomes more of a, a big deal um, in years to come. You spoke about um, the Australian team at that point. Like, in my opinion, that bunch of kangaroos you spoke about—Johns, Fitler, Lockyer, Badiris—like, that's the peak of the kangaroos for me. And you guys came up against them, as you said, with an underdog tag, but. I think people don't realise like how many guys for the Kiwis were playing out of position. I remember quite often Nigel Vungenar would play five eight. You know, he wouldn't be <laughs> yeah. playing that in club footy, but he would just fucking step up, wouldn't he? Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. Well, there's a part where he 
break. He got a, he actually scored a try, ducked under a couple of guys, scored a try and made a break and set up some people. But I think, um, you know, just think we really had faith in ourselves and believed in our ability. And, um, you know, the support from back home is always um, you know, really, really strong. And, you know, we always get compared to the All Blacks and I, it grates me massively, but I, I still feel like um, we do wear that underdog, not just in our own country, but um, internationally. So um, the quicker Madge gets us um, in there, earning our, our rightful place at the top and knocking off the green and golds, the, the, the better it's going to be for the international game and for me as an avid, proud Kiwi. As proud Kiwi as you are, Clinton, there was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that was presented to you during one of these Kiwi camps. Tell me about that. The opportunity to go and play with, as some would say, the immortal, or the eighth immortal, uh, Andrew Johns, back in 2005. I remember him hitting me up. I think we were at the same hotel together. And it sort of progressed, and I started thinking about it, but... I was so one-eyed. I was so warriors through and through. And it's a, it's crazy how things turn out. But you think a year later, I've left the club. <laughs> so who knows where it could have led to if I did play with the eighth immortal. Um, one thing that I still sort of look back on and think, what if? So who knows what that combination could have you know, developed or could have would have, should have made. <laughs> How did he approach you for that? Like, are you in a, you're in a hallway of the hotel? Are you, is he I, in your room? To tell me about that. Cause that's, that's a surreal experience to think Andrew Johns is coming to headhunt you as a center. Cause fuck, he had some handy bloody centers in Newcastle. It's a, it's a yeah, pretty surreal story. Yeah. I think I was at the toaster, bro. I think I was, he probably doesn't even remember, bro, but um, I was, we were both sharing the, Bondi Coogee Hotel there, or no, the Bondi, I don't know what the hotel, it might have been in Novotel, and it was, I think it was breakfast, and I think all their boys were out in the sort of sunroom area, and the vague things that I could remember was I was at the toaster, and I was putting in some food, getting some food, I think I might have been one of only a few worries left, and he sort of hit me up then, and I didn't know if he was serious, or it was something along the lines of, why don't you come and play with us, why don't you come up to the Knights? come and play up there and and I went oh bro I think I said oh bro thanks for that man but man I, I'm warriors through and through I don't know I can't remember but I think it was something along those lines but one of those things I look back and I think what the fuck I sort of regret and um, it was crazy because you know what's this 2000 <laughs> 2020 and 15 years later and that's still in the back of the mind of what potentially could have happened. I guess it wasn't meant to be, mate. Speaking of not meaning to be, um, explain to me the feeling and the emotion around in 2006 when you unfortunately had to leave your beloved New Zealand Warriors. Yeah, I think it was, um, I think it was a bit of both. I was on significant money then, and I probably you know, was doing just the right amount as opposed to what I was doing leading up to, you know, some of my best years was doing extras, training hard, putting in extra efforts, eating right, um, you know, 
building a strong connection with the players. And I think once I signed one of my biggest or the biggest contract I'd ever been on, I think I took for granted a lot of things and and it affected my football. I became more focused on my daughter. That was my newborn. I became more focused on, you know, things that revolve around footy. And I think there was a period where I would have happily walked away and just got on without footy um, around that 2006 period because I achieved everything that I wanted to achieve in league. Even though I hadn't won a grand final, it was... It was kind of a weird time and a difficult time. No, I didn't have mental health difficulties, but I just sort of felt like I'd got everything that I wanted. I played first grade, got good money. I played for the Kiwis. I, I was a regular first grader. I was on, um, you know, some part of the you know leadership group and things like that. It almost was like I'd everything I needed to do. So what is there now to do? Because we didn't have a rich history and we were writing history for the club, no one knew what was beyond. And I, I think I got to a point where I wasn't really listening to anyone because I thought, well, I'm one of the, the top players or senior players in my eyes <laughs> at the time at the Warriors that I, I probably wasn't. You know, the, the coaches or my mentors probably weren't piercing through deep enough in order to get me to wake up <laughs> so it felt like they didn't want me to be a part of the club anymore and I just never gelled with Ivan funnily enough it's weird we played together but when he became coach it sort of it, uh, we had awkward moments and I don't think he valued what I was bringing at the time so he dropped me straight after coming back from a test I think into the lower grades and I really started enjoying footy again but um, it's probably something I needed but at the same time I never got the chance to work my ass back into form it must be an awkward relationship when you when you play with a bloke and then he's your head coach like the relationship must be very strange it's um it is a bizarre one we go from being mates in a team to now he's telling you so I don't know if and look this could be because that's just the way I was at the time but maybe I didn't give him my full respect and I was sort of just taking in bits and pieces of what he was saying I I really can't recall but I know that we I didn't hate him I just think we just didn't work out and so I feel like I was wanted there anymore and that's the thing I've I really, really feel disappointed about not just in myself, but also the coaches in the club about not really persisting with me and giving me the opportunity to fight my ass back in because I know that I would have come back and I would have been better, I would have been stronger and I would have been a lot better off. But that wasn't the case and that obviously wasn't my destiny. So I um, went to where I felt like I was wanted and they've seen value in me and that's when the opportunity came so it, it wasn't no love lost but it wasn't like uh wasn't happy it wasn't hard it was just hey, let's go i'm off so i 
got the opportunity to go over to Leeds and my, my manager, Peter Brown, who's he's still really close with me to this day, been with me since I was 17, a good man and manager and father figure. <laughs> um, strong with the UK Super League. And yeah, he said, look, we've got this club here, good opportunity to go over there, did his homework and I went and joined um, Ali and Brent Webb come over and then that's when that kind of uh, Leeds connections started up. I was just about to say, it must have been pretty special for you to link back up with Ali Lawatiti and have Brent Webb there. You know, when I think of those two, I think they're the two most underrated Kiwis we've ever seen. Oh, by far, like, Webby, <laughs> he used to make me laugh. Didn't mind a can and a, and a, and a durry, but, yeah, he was... Freaking professional, like looked after his body, loved his body, pranced it around, which most guys would have if you had a rig like him anyway. But uh, to be one of the fittest, one of the strongest, ate really, really well, was pretty disciplined in those departments. Why he was able to do what he did on the field. And um, and Ali, he was, he was a different kind of athlete, man. He was a guy that mucked around, was a big kid and he had, um, you know, the uh, most lovable um, kind of character about him. Just rocked up and just did what he did. And that was a, a, like a natural athletic freak. Can I ask you, you know? what changes did you see from the Ali Lautiti that left in 2003 to when you arrived there in, in 2006 or 2007? Like, had he changed at all? Like, what, what was what was the nah, difference? Look, I... I just think um, Ali was back to Ali again. I think if anything that changed was the lifestyle over there. I think you get consumed by the food and training as much as what you were doing when you're down playing for NRL teams. So can tend to put on a few kilos. I'm not disrespecting and saying, oh, they're not doing enough up there. But when we got there, we were trying to do extras and, uh, you know, it was a funny story, but um, I remember the trainer going, these boys, what are you doing? We're like, oh, this was after a concession or day after. And it was like, what are you boys doing? What, what, why are you doing some training? He goes, oh, we're just doing extras. We're just trying to put some in the bank. And he's like, oh, what do you mean? Is, wasn't my stuff hard enough? You're making me look bad here, boys. But it was, um, yeah, it was a bit of a funny thing to sort of hear when, you're, you know, banking. You're basically banking stuff, and you're doing a good thing, and <laughs> your trainers asking you what the hell's going on. But it's funny uh, now, like in the modern game, if you're not doing extras, it's noticed in the other way, isn't it? Oh yeah, one hundred percent. And you can see that on the athletes. You can see that the way you know, how long they're lasting and things like that. But um, yeah, no. To go back to your question, brother, Ali never changed. I just think the environment changed. <laughs> You certainly uh, you picked the right team to go to over there. Your uh, your Leeds team. You picked up a couple of trophies in those in those few years, didn't you? Yeah, look, I um, was fortunate enough to be in uh, a winning grand final against uh, St Helens, and then against Melbourne in the World Club Challenge. But I think it was the beginning of the end for me when I got a couple of horrific injuries during that game and that year me out for the whole of 2008 with a shoulder rico and a knee rico uh, which eventually led me to 
are leaving the Leeds Rhinos. Um, again, I was still, even though I was 20, uh, 28 at the time, I was still young in the head, even though I had a real rock-hard, solid wife beside me. I sort of made the decision not to um, take a contract extension, which, you know, to the credit of the club, did not have to do. But again, the club, the outfit, the one of the best-run outfits that I've ever been a part of, associated to, was the um, Leeds Rhinos and Gary Hetherington basically told you where you stood in the in the in the organisation and you felt valued no matter where you were whether you were a cleaner the cook the strapper the player or you know ops manager you all felt equal and and and, and very much a part of the the club and the organisation but Gary offered me a uh, extension. I had till 2009, this was at midway through 2008, after my knee reco, I had surgery, called me in, he goes, look, mate, we really value you here, we'll keep you here post-2009, uh, your contract, where it ends, we'd like to extend it out to 2010, but the catch is, it'll be less money, we wanted to free up some money, so we could bring in somebody to replace you whilst you're recovering, because... We know that you probably won't be right till sort of mid-2009 and then you won't find your feet towards the end of the season and then come 2010, you'll be right. And, uh, you know, when a, a boss or a manager or CEO can talk to you, put it plain and simple to you like that, that means that he values you, not only yourself, but everybody in that organisation. Um, but like I said, I was still young and in, 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 the, in the head took up the second option which was a severance pay and they will pay me up my you know a portion of my 2009 contract and the remainder of 2008 and I would return home and that's where I decided I wanted to be a rugby union player <laughs> yeah right so tell me about that experience uh look to be brutally honest I never the play rugby union it was all about money man um not many people say it, but <laughs> it was all about the money for me at that point in my career. Um, I got told that I could make significant amount of money. I went and played in Japan. So I moved my family to uh, the Bay of Plenty, which is down in uh, Benji's hometown, Fakatane. And I set up shop down there with my uh, my in-laws and try to get on the road to recovery because I was still, uh, you know, probably six months away from fully recovering from my uh, knee injury. So basically a coach from Toshiba and a translator come over whilst my coach, uh, my manager was trying to align me to, a you know, this lucrative contract. And I'm saying upwards of uh, 600,000 for to play three I took to play 12 games a year. Good God. Mate, you can imagine where my mind was going with it. So, yep, never played rugby. Probably if I did, it was probably two or three games in my whole life. And that was with my brother until he told me to F off and go back and play with my my own mates. <laughs> um, I tried to learn this craft of uh, rugby union. No idea. No idea of scrummaging, but I, I had uh, some really good mates down there. And a um, coach who 
was a legend in the Māori All Blacks and Matt Tupou, who was a coach of the local team down there. And so him and his sons and one of my mates, um, Craig Edwards, sort of helped me out to learn the game, learn the craft, and eventually got an opportunity to go and play a um, stint with the Bay of Plenty Steamers. And, yeah, basically Toshiba said, look, play one NPC game, sign you. So, yep, I um, get into the fold of the Bay of Plenty Steamers. My legs were pretty busted. I wasn't getting the full benefits out of a, a proper recovery um, with the type of injury I had. And so I was busting my butt, re-injured the same knee, Came back two weeks to go in their season, warming up, and then I ended up going, uh, needing an op in my left knee. So cartilage, meniscus, so a whole clean out. And so there was my dream of getting this lucrative contract to go and play in Japan. But as I said before, uh, it wasn't meant to be. And But um, everything happens for a reason, so... Fast forward a couple more months and I'm into rehab, call from the Gold Coast Titans. There was actually a couple of other clubs in there. There was Melbourne Tigers, I think, and St. George. But because Gold Coast Titans threw money, I, I jumped at that opportunity straight away. I just didn't look at anything. I just went, oh, look, this could be a great opportunity play over there. Um, I did a bit of homework and watched who was there. And I saw, you know, David Mead and the likes of Matty Rogers, Bailey, Frankie, Manicello, the list goes on. And so I get over there on a training trial and um, offers it to me. But the other probably uh, stalemate was my wife got a perfect job teaching down in the beautiful place of Plenty in uh, Ohope or Fakatane, just out of Fakatane, and um, which made very difficult at the time to make a decision. But my wife, you know, true to the rock and uh, gem that she is, um, said, look, you gotta, you got to do what you got to do. you got to see this out, and I don't want you having any regrets when you do decide that your boat boots need to be hung up. So give it a whirl. Crazy story. I, I didn't even know about the rugby union, to be perfectly honest with you. Yeah, man, like, honestly, it wasn't that I loved the game, and I don't mean to disrespect it in any sense, but... Uh, when I was potentially going to make triple, double what I was on as a as a league player and older into my career. And I was thinking prolonged career as well because rugby union players tend to get a few more years out of the leagues, as do league players. So I thought maybe that's good timing for myself, but it wasn't meant to be. But I could have been selfish and jumped on that field and with my bad leg because they said, you're ready to go. I basically chose my <laughs> my selfish health over. Well, it's not selfish. I chose my health over money in the end. Yeah, and mate, you are uh, you arrived to the Titans in 2010. Uh, you played 14 games that year. You won 10. You lost four. Um, you know, a pretty successful year for the Titans. Um, and then it's sort of downhill after that, didn't it? Yeah, it was. Um, it was probably their best and their worst year, all in two. Years and 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 then part of the times that I was there, but yeah, it was a it was a sad time for the club. I could see the vision and what Sir was trying to build um, from a financial standpoint of the 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 club as a whole. Um, 
but the GFC hit, so that sort of hampered, you know, finances and things like that for the club to actually reach its true potential and get some fruits from the labours. At that high performance centre, we had the perfect kit out, fit out, set up there and at Rabina, but yeah, that wasn't meant to be. But it was just some tough times in 2011, I guess, with the the team and. You know, the direction we were heading in, it's it's sad because those same players were the ones that were a part of the successes. So I think it was some testing times amongst players and um, testing times within. But eventually they came out the other side and people went their own ways and still around. And I hope that they're still around with years to come. And, um, you know, this Justin Holbrook's going to be very valuable for the club and the players that, that are there. Tell me, mate, since retiring in 2011, I believe you've been working for the NRL. Explain to me uh, your role there. I, I got very lucky um, in a sense that I got offered a post-footy from the Gold Coast Titans. We had a Titans for Tomorrow run program that was predominantly in Indigenous communities. And we all know the, the work that, that Preston has done Throughout his career and post-career in Indigenous communities, you know, I got asked if I would like to take on that kind of role as well. It was a telling time for myself because I had to reassess again. I'm 31 and I get a call from Trent Robinson saying that he wanted me to go with him over to the Catalans, the Catalan Dragons, and he wanted me to help him mentor the centres coming through. And... and we met, I think, one or two times and never really progressed after that. But I actually seriously considered it. But again, things happen for a reason. I didn't, but I'm here today uh, because of it and still living here on the Gold Coast. But the work I've been doing in community has uh, been an amazing way to transition out of football. It was something I never saw myself doing, but it was a strong connection from the get-go. We had a pretty cool crew. Um, not many people know Paulie Sinclair, uh, but he's an Indigenous man who helped us with our facilitations and helped us skill us. And the likes of Dean Witters, Preston Campbell and myself went out to these communities and we delivered experiences. We mentored, we supported uh, young kids, we supported adults uh, throughout, I guess, a four or five year period where this day and age formed youth summit and the all-stars games that we play and uh, I was very part very much a part of the early days of all of those things you know starting off and building the foundation to what it is today so I'm, I'm glad that I got to be a part of that but now I'm working full-time for the NRL as a community program deliverer so the skills I learned post footy um, helped me transi- transition into this role where former players like myself, Preston Campbell, Shillow, David Shillington, Renee Kuntz, Ruan Sims, Antonio Winnerstein, and Nathan Friend. Uh, the list goes on, but we all go out and deliver some programs that are affecting society. And we also have a social inclusion program. So I work in the community department for the organisation. There's four marquee programs. One's School to Work, VAV, uh, which is Voice Against Violence, a... Um, State of Mind program, which I am now full-time under, and in League and Harmony. Uh, I just really enjoy being a part of these programs where we can go out and invest in these young 
communities' lives. That's giving them coping strategies or making connections and with uh, support services that we have um, and are our expert partners. Headspace being one of them. We get to, you know, sort of use our experiences as players to storytell to these young ones or communities about, you know, the struggles or the things that we went through and all the good things we're doing in order to, you know, keep sane or keep a balance in, in the crazy world we live in. Mate, I know you did some cracking work on the field, but it sounds like uh, you're doing your best gig off the field at the moment. Yeah, look, I, I really value the the work that the NRL is doing, which has enabled me to be a part of along this journey. And, and it, it really hurts when NRL gets smashed or gets criticised heavily for the bad that they do. Uh, it's sad that we're so conditioned to that kind of media, that kind of publicity. No one's ever asking us about the good that we do or we're trying to do. <laughs> um, you know, I'm only one piece of the, the big pie that is investing in the lives of others outside um, of our NRL organisation. We're going into communities across the country and, you know, really genuinely investing into these communities' lives. Sometimes I feel like I'm a hypocrite, you know, because you're like investing all this energy into these communities and you go home and you can be zapped and, you know, sometimes my family are on the brunt end of it and they don't deserve that. But it's it's me giving myself a reality check too. But not just that, there's other things I see, other areas that I can improve on as a father. Sometimes people might look on Instagram or on, on people's pages, Facebook pages and see oh, man, I wish I was that person. I wish I could be that. But that doesn't always tell the real story of what's really going on. And so I think um, when I do or when we do as an organisation get an opportunity to go out there, storytell, they get to see, um, you know, the real us and they get to get some value from it. And that's something I really love and enjoy doing. Mate, you you just spoke about your family then. Um, Just from the outside looking into me, hearing your story, your wife sounds like an incredible person. Tell me about her. I look, yeah, she's um, yeah, she's been the rock to um, me along my my life and my time. She's always been the concrete <laughs> to everything. She's been the sound judgment. She's been the reason. She's been the one to pull my head in. Um, she's a great role model, a mother. And, you know, there's days that I feel like I never weigh up to the, the wonderful person that she is. Um, she's hardworking. She's a teacher that loves her job. And I know that you as a teacher, otherwise you wouldn't be doing it, um, love investing all your energy and your knowledge into your kids. And I see it every day with my wife. Um, she comes home absolutely zapped. But, um, she's, um, she's the queen. She's the leader of of our house, she's the boss and um, I can't speak, um, you know, highly enough of her and I really do hope that my girls take all the amazing uh, attributes that she possesses because um, that'll set them up right good. Before I let you go, uh, one final question I love asking former Kiwis players this, Stacey Jones or Benji Marshall? Stacey Jones all day of the week. 
because everything about him, I got to play with him. So I wish in my true honest heart that I had those two as my halves. Could have been a killer combination, but um, it wasn't to be. And I think he forged that with foreign. But now I would take Stacey Jones every day of the week. No questions asked. Just for everything I've said about him, the way he leads, the way he conducts himself um, as a as an athlete, he's he's quiet, but yet he could get shit done. And uh, he was a game breaker, a game controller. Uh, one thing I don't see a lot of in the young ones coming through these days, one that can orchestrate a team and get your boys to, to do things and get shit done. Um, that was something that I valued from Stace. So, like I said, Stacey Jones, all day, every day, baby, the little Jenny. Mate, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Uh, congratulations on your amazing career on the field. And it just sounds to me like you're doing amazing things off it. Um, and I just want to thank you for giving your time to us today. It's been a fantastic experience. No worries, Nath, bro. I really appreciate um, you giving me the opportunity to speak on this platform. The Guru doing great things out there and um, giving people great insight as well. So um, I really appreciate what you're doing for our game as well. There's um, you know, a lot of people doing great work and you're a part of that, mate. And uh, um, Just keep it up and, and, and thanks again. All the best in the future, mate. We'll talk soon. Thanks, brother. Take See care. You, mate. Bye-bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.